This is Reinvented. I'm Chris Bordoni, and this show is about the art and science of transformation. In season two of Reinvented, we're exploring ways to design a better life from your physical health to your mental well being and far, far beyond. If you're one of the 98% of people who take the escalator instead of the stairs, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Today, I speak with Michael Easter, author of The Comfort Crisis, about how stepping out of our modern, comfortable lifestyles can dramatically improve our health, happiness, and spiritual well-being. We talk about comfort creep, evolutionary mismatches, boredom, and how to start adding difficulty back into your life. All right, let's get started. Uh, So my name is Michael Easter. I recently wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis. And in writing that book, I spent 33 days in the Alaskan backcountry. I traveled 30,000 miles around the globe. And it is essentially an investigation about how our health and happiness have suffered from all the modern comforts and conveniences that are in our world right now. Um, Our modern comfortable lifestyles are tied to a lot of our problems like obesity, uh, chronic disease, high rates of depression, lack of meaning, and how by stepping outside of our comfort zones, we can uh, dramatically improve our health, happiness, and spiritual well-being. And um, in my day job, I am a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV, and I do a lot of magazine work too. So my background is a as a journalist. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. And I'm I'm super excited to have you here. And I mentioned to you before we started, but I just finished reading the book last night and it is awesome. It's a fantastic book. It's super interesting. And I as I was reading, I was like constantly making notes of things that I want to try in my life, things I want to change, things I hadn't thought about. And so for me, anyways, that's the mark of a great book. So congrats on on getting it done. And I'm sure that listeners will be really excited to check it out. Um, I guess before we dive in, let me ask you this. Why did you write this book? Why did you go and spend 33 days in, in the backcountry, like deep in the wilderness? Why did you do all the research? Why did you go down this path in the first place? Uh, there, there are a handful of reasons, but I would say uh, the main one is that I'm a journalist who writes about the science of health and human performance. I have my entire career. And I noticed sort of early on in my career that anything that improves our health usually requires going through some sort of discomfort Mm. in a way. And I had some experiences in my life that sort of cemented this for me. Um, And as a writer, I've always been drawn to people who sort of live on, I guess I would say, the edges. And I became good friends with this guy whose name is Donnie Vincent. And Donnie is a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. So he travels into the world's most remote, sort of dangerous, extreme areas. And he'll spend months at a time out there hunting. And Donnie invited me on a hunt. Uh, It was a shorter one uh, up to Nevada. We became good friends. And then he invited me on a much longer, more extreme hunt uh, up to the Arctic for 33 days. And um, I said, all right, I'm going to (laughs) go. So I go with him and... um, it was, I mean, a radically different experience than I was used to, you know, because of my job, I would say I was relatively up on all the health science. I had embedded myself in some of the world's most, um, you know, extreme gyms and, you know, trained with athletes and done all this stuff. Like, I just felt like I really knew like what improved uh, human health. And we get out to the Arctic and it's just like this radically different experience than uh, I was used to because it was uncomfortable in every single way. Right? Like we're cold the entire time. We're starving because we didn't pack enough food because food is heavy. Like we wanted more food, but I'm not going to carry 200 pounds of food. 
Um, we faced crazy weather and wildlife. It was just, just a really extreme experience. Uh, but when I got back home to my sort of modern, comfortable life, I was totally transformed. I was, you know, it's like 10 pounds lighter, fitter than I'd ever been. But more importantly, sort of the dial on my, I would say, mental, physical, and even spiritual health that felt like it had been moved just 10 notches. And I wondered uh, why that was. And I thought about that observation I'd made about discomfort years ago. And then I sort of had this moment where I looked at this world I'd come back to after being in Alaska for so long. And it was like, oh my God, like my modern life is so unbelievably comfortable in every single way, 24 seven, no challenge. But this environment that I just come back from was the complete opposite, where literally everything is uncomfortable and everything requires effort. But that was the environment that humans lived in for literally all of time leading up to, I mean, even just 100 years ago, which is like a fraction of a second in the grand scheme of humanity. Uh, we lived in these uncomfortable environments. And so from there, you know, it obviously raises a question, which is, what is all this comfort that we live in done to us? And are there any upsides to going back into discomfort and trying to insert uh, discomfort back into your life in a intelligent way? Like, can that move the dial for us? So I went all in um, investigating this. Like I mentioned before, I traveled the world, talked to a lot of different experts, uh, ranging from you know researchers at Harvard, doctors at the Mayo Clinic, special forces soldiers, uh, Buddhist leaders in Bhutan. And I read all kinds of research. And that kind of led me to this uh, conclusion that I've come to that um, there are definitely downsides to all the comforts that we've surrounded ourselves in. I mean, just think of your average daily life. Like we've experienced no temperature changes. You know, we don't have to put in effort for our food or to live. Um, just all these different ways and inserting certain forms of discomfort back in your life can move the dial for you. And it's not the message of the book is not just, you know, go out and haphazardly do something that makes you uncomfortable. Um, there are specific ones, uh, types of discomfort, uh, that we evolved to face that seem to move the dial for people. So what, let's talk about that for a second. What's lost in that, right? Like, so you mentioned like, as we're in temperature controlled environments, as we like, don't have to worry about our food, we don't move, right? Most of us work desk jobs. And so we sit in the same spot and not only do we sit in the same spot, but we have like these ergonomic chairs that hold us. So our, our muscles don't have to do anything. Like well, there's so many things that I think we have designed out of our life in terms of difficulty. Right. And in some, some cases that that makes a lot of sense. Like I don't know, when it comes to something like food, like we're able to feed billions of people on this planet. That's generally a good thing. There's people like far fewer people who are experiencing scarcity, but there's downsides to these things too. Like what, what are some of the big downsides that you see? And, and, and then as you were going through that experience and then doing all the research, what did you learn about walking it back? Like, how should we be thinking about dialing that back in our own lives? Yeah. So, uh, anthropologists call this an evolutionary mismatch, which is that, uh, traits uh, and drives that we developed as we evolved um, when placed in a different environment can actually backfire. So I think that's where we're at now. And I agree with you 100% that all these amazing things we have in our life now are just that. They're amazing. But we have, these in, we have this internal drive to always be comfortable uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, because this used to save us in, and keep us safe in our past uncomfortable environments. So for example, when we evolved, uh, food was scarce. 
So we would become hungry. This is this internal discomfort that tells us, go out and get food. You don't feel good. You know what will solve this? Food. Um, we feel uncomfortable when we move and exercise because this helped us save energy mm. in that calorie scarce environment. Uh, we don't like being cold and we don't like being too hot because our body has to compensate for that. And that uses energy. So we have all these internal drives, but now we're living in this world where nothing is actually uncomfortable anymore. So to take the, f- the food and hunger example, uh, whenever we feel hungry, we can now just, we have food available freely. We don't have to work for it. Um, and we also have this drive to be lazy, more or less. This used to be beneficial, but now it's it's backfired because it used to be that, okay, if I'm hungry, this is telling me to go get you know some potatoes and maybe hunt. And to do that, I'm going to have to move a lot. Well, now it's like, Oh, I can just like get a Frito pie to drive through for, you know, a dollar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, on and on, there are a lot of different ways that this uh, plays out in our day-to-day lives. The, the physical, ben- the physical setbacks or challenges from this, they seem more clear to me, right? So like, if you, if you don't move, like makes sense that you would lose range of motion, you'd lose strength, you'd lose mobility, like you lose all these things. And it seems like by every measure, like we are weaker and less physically able than previous generations on average, which makes sense because we don't do anything right. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to mental health though, I think some of the part that was really interesting about the book was some of the tie in there and some of the challenges and the relationships with the changes that you're talking about and, and some of the mental health challenges or just well-being challenges, whether it's emotional, et cetera, that, that people are facing. Talk to me about that side of it and kind of where do things go wrong in terms of our, our mental well-being, not just our physical well-being. Yeah. So I'll tell you a story. When we get up to Alaska, you have to take these tiny tiny little planes into the backcountry, And I am afraid of flying in a 747, much less a plane that is the size of a pack of gum that is going to be going into fog and is just going to land in the middle of the tundra. So I'm so worked up about having to get on this plane. And anyways, I do it. It's part of my job. And we go out and we face all these, you know, real physical challenges where that are actually very dangerous. I mean, it was, it was definitely dangerous up there. And after 33 days, when that plane came back and landed, I wasn't afraid to get on it. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that in modern life, we don't ever face, we very rarely face things that are actual threats to our safety and that are truly challenging. You know, today, kind of like myself getting worked up over having to get on a plane, mm-hmm. it's like the things that really challenge us are like, I have to give a presentation. And failure means that my boss is going to give me a bad look. Uh, It could be that I have to go on a podcast and I'm afraid I'm going to say, um, too many times. And that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. And I'll consider that a failure. But as we evolved, failure could have meant, you know, you could have died from real failure. It's like our challenges were like, I have to uh, migrate down to my summering grounds. And if if we don't make, make it fast enough, we're going to get hit with weather could be that, you know, I'm hunting and um, there happened to be a tiger in the bush or whatever, you know. And nowadays, we our challenges are so um, not really going to affect our, our true safety that we've, we have an outsized fear of these sort of mundane things that are new and sort of nothing in the grand scheme of our lives. So this is why you have, you know, people 
having mental health problems over things like not getting enough likes on Instagram, not having enough followers, because these are we've we've sort of removed any real challenge from our life. And you see these stories uh, about physical challenges really moving the dial on mental health in stuff like the work of Joseph Campbell and things like rites of passage. Like these are tales as old as time through all of human cultures. It's like when young people needed to move onto this new stage in their life where they would become more confident and competent and be a real contributor to society. They'd often be sent out in the wild on some sort of challenge because when you're out there and having to face these true challenges, you're learning something about yourself. Um, Joseph Campbell has this line in A Hero with a Thousand Faces where he says, um, by slaying the dragon, we're actually slaying ourselves. And he means like our sense of our sense of ego and we're sort of moving into this this new self. And we just don't have that anymore. It's like, you know, what's a rite of passage for a for a teenager today? Like maybe getting a driver's license, but that's I mean, that's yeah. uh, take a 30 minute test and make sure you turn your blinker on and you're good to go. You know? It's so interesting because it's almost like it's almost like we've reset the scale or we've lost the calibration of what, what should cause us to be stressed out. And I remember like when I got sick and was going through chemo and all that stuff, like for that period of time, all I had to focus on was just not dying. Right. It was just staying healthy through that period of time. And I talk about, I've written about like how that allowed me to leave the cult of perfectionism and how like suddenly there was no perfect. There was no, it was just, are you doing okay? Are you alive? Are you breathing? Like, are you getting from one day to the next? And that's what success was. And that was super helpful for me because in the aftermath of that, like things happen. Um, and I have a little bit more perspective on how much does it actually matter? Will I really care about this six months from now? Is it worth me being upset about? That was really helpful for me. I don't recommend that everyone goes through that experience of getting that perspective. Right. But but I, I think very much of what you're saying resonates with me in that, like, if you've only ever seen things that are sort of in this narrow band of difficult, and it's not to say that if all you ever know is, you know, being on social media and you and not getting likes and people inundating you with negative comments or whatever, like that is stressful. That stress is real. Like I'm not taking any, anything away from people. Um, but I think there is something to having seen a bit more than that and having seen some bigger things and just having a little bit more variability in, in your data set, right? So that you can look at it and say, hey, you know what? these things that are run of the mill or that happen every day, like they're probably not worth stressing about in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, terrible to hear that you got cancer, but the message coming out of that is spot on. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like, I'm sure all these other hangups you used to have in your daily life just sort of faded and you've got this one, one goal and it gives you probably give you a lot of perspective. Yeah. The hard thing a lot of times is actually hanging on to that. Right. So uh, mm-hmm. like I, I went through sick, all that stuff and got better and, and was like, OK, like I'm going to live my life differently. Like my, I'm mm-hmm. really clear about my values, about what I want to do with my work, like how I want to live my life. And I think that was really powerful for my wife and I. Um, but then you go back into the rest of the world and you you interface with everyone else and all the structures we've set up. And the, the challenging part is not losing that. And so what's super cool about like this podcast is it's just an opportunity for me every week to talk to other people who are kind of in that same place. And it, it snaps me back to where I want to be. Right. Tell me about your own experience though. Right. So you, you're gone for 33 days of this amazing experience. It catalyzes you to go and do all this cool research and write a book, which is amazing. Um, but do you find now that like you, you feel that pull back into like the creature comforts or the, like the loss of perspective? Like, do you find that you're fighting that battle? day in and day out yourself? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, humans are wired to do that, which is most comfortable for us. I mean, one stat that I love is uh, two, and that's the percent of people who take the stairs when there's also an escalator. I mean, we don't think about it. We just default to do whatever is easiest. Uh, But we also know because we have so much easy in our life now that that can backfire. We, We thrive on some sort of challenges. So trying to think about my own life, how do I how do I insert challenge yeah. on a small scale day to day, but also on a yearly basis is something I think a lot about. So I do, I try and do one uh, hard, really hard trying thing in nature uh, at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a concept in the book I talk about called Masogi, and it's essentially mimicking these, these past challenges that we used to face. But the idea is that it presents uh, a high a high risk of failure. Like you should have a 50-50 ch- shot of, of finishing this thing. But when you go out there, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to get a little bit of perspective on how comfortable uh, your life has become. And doing something like that, at least for me, has been helpful. And even on the small scale, I mean, I, for example, uh, I meditate. I'll even just meditate in the sitting position without a backrest because all of a sudden it's like just that little that little bit of back activation for 30 minutes a day. Like my back problems went away. Yeah. And that's just something that can is is so easy and it's we've we've taken things like activity so much out of our lives that even just adding a little bit on helps incredibly incredibly. I mean, you look at the data, it's like the people who are move the least when they insert activity back in their life, even just the simplest way they, the dial gets moved the most because they're so far behind. Yeah. You you have some really interesting data in the book about back injuries. I had two pretty serious back injuries when I was in my twenties and, um, Mm. which, which were not a lot of fun. Um, and, and not only that though, but I, I remember, you know, looking at the path of like, should I have surgery? Should I not? And looking at the data and the results are terrible for people who have back surgery, right? It's, it's awful. Yeah. And I think what was so interesting about some of the data you shared was that like getting people back moving to your point and, and just like returning to small activities from a baseline for many people of, of either nothing or way too much, right? Um, like mm-hmm. getting back to that place can have amazing effects that are so much better in that specific instance than, you know, the best surgeons in the world. And I think that's so fascinating that like, for some things, we could be so far away from what our bodies were designed for that making a small step in in the right direction, I guess naturally, right, um, is is so much better than the best science, drugs, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think the way we've set up the modern environment, it's like we all want quick fixes. It's like who doesn't want a quick fix, right? Yeah. So I think we default to okay, I can have this surgery that's going to take six hours. They'll, you know, I'll be out of the surgeon's room and I'll be back on my couch for a couple of weeks. And then I think I'll be back to normal life, but it doesn't quite always work out that way. Um, and those, like you brought up surgeries, they, most of them fail. And even at that, they can even leave people hooked on pain pills. I mean, that was one of the major drivers of the opioid epidemic when really, if we can just restore what our back was meant to do and restore some of the the muscle tissue around that. I mean, that can clear up. I, I bet that would clear up most people's problems yeah. in the country who have back pain. I mean, obviously some people have issues that are, they are going to need to go under the knife, but so much of the surgeries that we do do could be cleared up basically just by 
being a little more active every day and doing some specific exercises around it. Yeah. So when you think about adding discomfort back into your life, are you like looking for a way to make everything less comfortable? Are you like, okay, cold showers only, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grow my own food, like whatever it is that you can do, or are you trying to be more selective than that? No, dude, I'm not trying to make everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's like, if you want to be a really good boxer, what's the key? It's not getting punched in the face, right? Getting punched in the face is one thing that happens as you become a better boxer, but that is not the goal. Right. So I think for me, it's like, what are some intelligent things that I can do, but I don't have to make everything uncomfortable just for the sake of being uncomfortable. Like I hate cold showers. I'm not going to do that. It's just like not worth it for me. Um, but I do think about how to add it back in, in ways that are perhaps more, uh, approachable for me, things that don't make me want to die inside, you know? (laughs) Um, for example, I used to mostly just work out at the gym and after doing, uh, writing this book, you look at a lot of the research on even just running on a trail instead of on a treadmill. And it's unbelievable. Like some of the data suggests you burn 28% more calories per mile. What's more, and this I found exceedingly fascinating is that, you know, you think about the context that humans evolved in when we were running, we're a species that um, evolved to run, which is interesting in a different conversation. But when we were running, it was always outside in these outdoor environments. We're having to navigate terrain. We're having to keep our eyes to see, you know, is there a snake on the path? There's like all these cognitive challenges of running outside, uh, which we don't have if we just go on a treadmill and, you know, watch Dog the Bounty Hunter or whatever and just zone out for half an hour. So it's thinking about like, how can I make how can I add a little bit more challenge into this thing that I'm already doing? So, you know, one example for me, like I said, if I work out outside, that adds a totally another layer of challenge beyond just the physical. It's also mental. Mm -hmm. Um, Even things like, you know, when it comes to food, you look at the data and it suggests that 80% of the time that people eat today, it's not because they're hungry. It's for some other reason that's interpreted as hunger. It's because Oh, it's 9 a.m. and I eat breakfast at 9 a.m., right? It's a schedule. Or I'm stressed out at work and food is a really easy escape from stress because when we eat, we have these evolutionary mechanisms where we eat calories, we get a shot of dopamine, it makes us feel good. That used to reinforce us to eat more and gain weight, which would help us next time we face the famine, right? But we don't face famines anymore. Yeah. So even things like delaying breakfast until I'm actually physiologically hungry, it's like, Oh, it's a good, it's a good measurement of like, how much do I need to be eating? And, and when should I actually eat instead of just mindlessly sort of just eating? Cause yeah, eating's easy and, and it's great. You know, yeah. thinking of things like that. And even things like we're no longer in silence anymore. We've increased the world's loudness. I think it's, I'm going to forget the stat. I think it's like fourfold being in silence is amazing. I mean, it, feels uncomfortable at first because we're so tuned into just having constant stimulus around us. I mean, there's some data that says that most people today keep the TV on, not because they're watching it, but because they just want some noise in the background. It's like a companion. Yeah. But when you put yourself through that silence, it might be awkward and uncomfortable at first, but then all of a sudden it's like you have a lot more space to think and create and sort of be with yourself 
and maybe learn something about yourself instead of just defaulting to this, you know, background noise. We talk a little bit, it's related. We talk a little bit about boredom because you talk about just sitting out there for like days, just staring out into the snow, just waiting for something, right? Like, tell me a little bit Mm -hmm. more about like, what was that experience like? But then have you thought about creating more, actively creating more boredom in your own life? Yeah. So we would be, we're out hunting in the Arctic and we would, we're hunting a uh, caribou. So there's this herd uh, called the Western Arctic herd. And there's about a quarter million caribou in this herd. And they always, they, they're migrating. Uh, you catch them on the migration where they're migrating down to their wintering grounds. So you're just kind of waiting on this hill for certain herds to move in and out and see what happens. But waiting is really the game. I mean, we would have days where we would just sit there for, you know, 15 hours waiting for a herd to come through and nothing would happen. Now, the thing is, is cell phones don't work up there. So your cell phone is completely useless. I had not packed any books or magazines or downloaded any podcasts. So, I mean, I literally have time where there is no media around for hundreds of miles. Now, I'm very similar to the average American and that I engage, I'm on my cell phone a lot, at least three hours a day normally before this. Uh, I read a lot of books. I watch a lot of Netflix. The average American now engages with digital media at least 11 hours every single day. I mean, so digital media isn't even a hundred. I mean, it's like a hundred years old. We went from never having any of this stimulation in our lives for about 2.5 million years to all of a sudden like, bam, this has become our life, right? So we're never bored anymore. We have these very, very easy ways to escape from the discomfort of boredom. But if you look at the research, it suggests that boredom is this evolutionary mechanism that told us to uh, do something, do something productive. Well, now our something is this easy escape onto our phone to like look at Instagram or Twitter or whatever your, you know, choice of your phone app that you're, you're always in. But before that, we would often, you know, have to mind wander. We would think of creative things that we could do to improve our lives. We would think of others. We would have all these other ways out of it that were far more productive, most likely. And now we just kind of go into Instagram and zone out. And this is also this lack of mind wandering that we have too, where it's more internal. We're thinking... um, internally, instead of paying attention to something external like our cell phone, um, this is associated with a lot of our burnout and anxiety because our mind never has a moment to go internal and rest. Um, when you're thinking, when you're mind wandering, it's actually a rest mode that can sort of mm-hmm. gives your brain a second to like pause. But now we're always in this active, you know, checking likes mode, checking Twitter mode, checking our stocks mode, whatever you're checking, you know, yeah. it, it, your brain, uh, it makes your brain work. I had a, a professor in business school, his name was Eric Hurst, and he did a lot of research about how people, like how people spend their time. And he would look at the data and, and could show over time that, you know, average working age men in particular were spending like far less time actually working. And his whole point was like, have you played Xbox before? Like there are so many amazing things that you can do. Like, why would you want to work? Right. There's so like leisure has become so much more compelling than working. Yes. And so people, people will work maybe as much as they need to, but uh, beyond that, like the alternatives are so much better. And I think that's the challenge with this, right? Is like your cell phones are designed by really smart people to be compelling, to be addicting, to be mm-hmm. amazing. And they are amazing. But if you're not, I guess, careful about designing your environment, figuring out how to like control 
when and where and how much of that you let into your life, like it, it becomes everything. Right. And so I think just that, that the awareness of it, and then the desire to make some changes and just to realize like your willpower is not nearly enough to avoid your cell phone. Like you have to be more thoughtful about it than that. Yeah. And I tend to think about it, you know, there's so much out now about how we need to use our phone less. We need to break up with our phone. And I tend to think about it just because people actually watch a lot more television than they do look at their phone and your brain doesn't really know the difference. Mm -hmm. I tend to think about it as we need more boredom rather than, than less media. So I try and consciously think of ways that I can put myself in a scenario where I'm not going to have that easy access to media, where I'm going to get bored, which is going to force me to mind wander. So things like if I'm running errands, I'll just leave my phone at home. Like what's the worst that can happen? I mean, people freak out. It's like, we did this literally forever until like 15 years ago, like you're going to be fine. Um, things like wait to the doctor's office. Don't bring your phone in. Um, things like that. I'll also drive in complete silence, which makes you feel, makes me feel like a psychopath for the first couple minutes. But then it's like, you start to notice stuff, you know, you're not buried immediately into the radio or whatever it might be. Notice people walking and like, Oh, that's interesting. Or you'll notice something about a building or a billboard that you hadn't before. And it sort of just kind of getting out of your routine. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. One thing that I had never known and it kind of blew my mind when I was reading your book was you talk about like the value of going out for walks in nature. It's like, good. I think there's a lot of people talking about nature bathing and and just the benefits of being out there. I think that part's good. I think we all get that. What was crazy though, was you're talking about how, if you take your cell phone and you're talking on the phone to someone while you're going for a walk, you don't get any of the benefit of being out in nature. And that to me is like, was mind blowing because I do that all the time where I'm like, cool, like I'm going to go out for a walk and this is great. And like the exercise is good, right? That's good either way, but like I'll be outside and I'm, maybe it's better than sitting in my office, but, um, I've started since I read that part, I've started now going out and and going for walks and just, just being in silence. And it feels so different. And it feels honestly really embarrassing and dumb that we're having this conversation, but this is the world we live in. Right. And, and something like going outside or, or going for a drive without your phone and no music on, like, it actually feels really different. And you, and I've never felt worse after the fact for it. And I think that says something about it. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. You won't, yeah, you won't feel worse after. I think, um, I mean, for me, I'll even do things like I'll run pretty far out in the desert and I mean, phones are great. Like I'll still take it, but I'll turn it off in case I like trip and break a leg or whatever. And I need to, you know, all right, helicopter fire up. You got to come get me. Um, but I'll turn it off. Or if I'm, you know, sort of feel like I'm bonking and maybe some music would help like fine, but I can listen to that on the the last quarter of the run or whatever it is, you know? So it's not, I feel like sometimes when, People have conversations about tech and everything. It's like, oh, it's all bad. It's like, no, it's not. It's amazing. Like cell phones are amazing. You know, I could never find my way anywhere if it weren't for Google Maps. The fact that I can go down a crazy Spotify rabbit hole and like be listening to all these different artists, like I love that. But overdone, there's obviously some drawbacks. And to your point earlier, there are very, very smart people designing these apps so that we do overdo them because that is how you make profits right. and they, you know, that's their job. It's funny. 
you've said a couple things that remind me of things that like your grandparent would say, right? About like, um, you know, like difficult things take effort or like it's, it's good to be uncomfortable a little bit. And I think about like older generations and I think about the wisdom of what, like what's been lost, right? Like, and I guess what I'm curious to ask you is, do you feel like in you're doing your research, there's a lot of things where you're like, shit, like we knew the answer to this all along. And we've just somehow forgotten it. And like, it's not like you're discovering things that are totally not new, but it's more like, how do we just get back to what we've been for most of our existence and all that grandparent wisdom that we've like ignored and you never want to hear when you're younger, like actually it turns out that there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. How do we get back to it? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think that we often forget that our lives have changed so much. So, I mean, in every way, Hmm. right. It's, it's, that we're no longer all farmers. So we're moving less. The food that we eat is so much different that we're always behind screens is so much different. I mean, there have been so many radical changes that I do think we need to have more time where we try and mimic some of those environments of the past. And that's where going outside comes in and, you know, spending a couple of days outdoors camping or whatever it might be. I mean, I think for, I think for kids, there's a lot of opportunity too, because especially with the pandemic, man, like kids have been forced inside more, um, you know, recess is going away. There's everything is very, very safe. Of course we want our kids to be safe, but like your kid's not going to die and be kidnapped. If you know, you let them go outside and play in the woods for a couple hours, like that's going to do so much for their ability to learn something about themselves and become resilient too. Cause you know, I remember when I was a kid, it's like, you got in the woods, you'd fall, you'd get hurt, you'd, you'd do this and that, but it's a learning experience yeah. the entire time. And then you kind of take those scars with you and it helps you the next time you face some sort of trying scenario. You know, a lot of these things have, have carryover. Look at the data. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to go back and talk about diet for a moment. So you'd written a lot about diet in the past and for various publications. Um, mm-hmm. And then you talk about starting to work with Trevor Kashi. And I've been, mm-hmm. I've been doing a little research on him, in- really interesting guy. Um, and you talk about how you lost a lot of weight on your trip, got in better shape, and like basically are feeling amazing, to put words in your mouth. What was the big unlock? What was the big insight for you once you started working with Trevor and started making some changes to how you thought about diet and fitness? The short answer is that what you eat doesn't matter as much as uh, why you eat. So you look at every data, or sorry, every uh, diet, they all work the same way. It's You have to lower your calories and burn more calories than you're eating. I mean, that's, that's really it. Yeah. Yet we have this whole diet industrial complex that tells us, no, it's some specific ingredient in food that is the villain. And that's what's making you fat, whether it's sugar, it's fat, it's carbs, it's, you know, foods that are not from the Mediterranean, whatever it may be. The common theme is that all these diets have you remove some foods. And by removing foods, you eat less, you lose weight. Great. That's how diets basically work. So then the question is, all these diets, essentially, most people uh, can't sustain diets. So what's the rate limiting step there? Well, we have these internal mechanisms that after about five weeks, your body realizes that it's losing weight and it goes, rot row. Because <laughs> in our past environment, it was like, you didn't want to lose the weight. That's exceedingly dangerous. It signals to your body that something has gone wrong. So it starts to kick up your hunger hormones. It starts to do all this stuff to make you more hungry and eat more uh, food. So one, realizing that 
food doesn't really matter in specifically, but thinking about foods that what are, what's going to fill you up. And that could be anything. It's like people have success on the keto diet. People have success on the Mediterranean diet, whatever, just try one that you think is going to sustain you and make you feel full and that you can use, uh, that you can eat for the long term and sustain, you know? So working with Trevor, it's, and he's a, he is a fascinating, fascinating character. He's, uh, tell you a little bit about him. He got his PhD when he was 23 years old. He has, uh, I think his IQ is around 160. I mean, he's just talking to him is like, it's just a, it's a trip. That's the only way to put it. And his background. And I didn't, I didn't include this in the book because it felt like it would necessitate an entire new chapter. But when he was in college, he actually uh, did work for the hell's angels where he was sort of a real life, Walter white, like helping them make, more pure methamphetamine. And now he's like this PhD helping all these people lose weight. I mean, just a really fascinating guy, but yeah, I mean, he doesn't really care what, what people eat. He's like, if you want to eat pizza on your diet, that's fine. You just have to eat this certain amount of calories that we're going to measure because people don't really know how much food they eat. So like, you have to know how much food you're eating and then you have to figure out, well, why am I eating at these certain times? Is, is it because I'm actually hungry or am I just eating because I'm stressed out. So much of our eating today is driven by stress. A lot of the studies say that, you know, stress is one of the major causes of the obesity epidemic because, because we have this easy sort of over the counter caloric Xanax <laughs> at our fingertips yeah. whenever we want it. What's the, what's the thinking there on how you unwind that? Like, how do you break that cycle of, you know, it's, it's a habit, right? Where you feel, you feel stressed about something and in the past you've eaten and then you have like all the good response from that. And so you say, oh, I'll do that again. Right. And like, it becomes a subconscious loop. What are your thoughts on like, how do you start to break that cycle and go back to a place where you eat when you're hungry and you find other ways of medicating or whatever, taking care of yourself when, when, uh, when you have those needs? Well, I think a lot of times, um, thinking about, is this a craving or is this, do I actually need food? Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of times, like, when was the last time you ate? If you ate a couple hours ago, it's probably, and you just feel this sudden urge for M&Ms, it's probably a craving. And so what can you do that uh, is energy neutral or energy negative? Meaning, what can I do where I'm not eating uh, or I'm even burning calories to sort of offset that? Because if it's something driven by stress, going for a walk is a great way to relieve stress and you're actually doing something good for your health, you're burning a few calories rather than eating yeah. calories, you know? Um, I also think try not eating breakfast every now and then. I mean, I don't think that fasting is this super, super wonder drug. Like it sort of gets pitched as, I mean, I think there are unique benefits to it, but one of the main benefits is just that you're going to be hungry and you're going to realize oh, hunger isn't actually that bad. Like hunger doesn't build and build and build over time until your stomach just implodes and you die. Like it comes in these waves, up and down waves, you know, and it's not that bad. Yeah. There is something to be said for like just demystifying these things, right? Because like, you know, I, I was lucky to have a meal every every time there should have been a meal. And so I didn't have periods mm -hmm. of, of hunger. But then in the last couple of years, I've experimented with things like fasting. And you realize like, okay, you can go 24 hours without eating food. And it's like, it's really not a big deal. But yeah, but there are so many times in the past where you you do get food insecure and you do worry about it. And so you, you plan your life around it. And now it's like, okay, like if I don't have time to eat that meal, like it's not a big deal. It's totally fine. And I'm trying to do the same thing in our family too, where like, 
I don't know, we'll do things on a weekend where we say, you know what, like we're just going to not have power. We're just going to turn the power out for the weekend and see what happens. Mm. And, you know, there's some things that are annoying about that. And if you haven't thought it through, like it's, it's particularly annoying, but like, it's annoying. It's not a big, a big issue. Right. And so I, I think there are so many things like that, where just having the experience and being open about it and trusting that you'll be okay. Um, like allows you to alleviate a lot of that stress around whatever that thing is. Yeah. And I mean, you think about it, it's like humans didn't even get power until, you know, whenever right. it was a hundred years, like we did fine. We've made it this far. Yeah. You know, it's like, we can make it a couple of days. And I think we sometimes forget how much different and how much more challenging people had uh, people's lives were even recently. I mean, I have a great aunt who migrated across the Western Plains. This was like 150 years ago. And she like nicked her leg and got infected. She had to cut her leg off in the middle of a handcart and get pulled continuously across the Plains. And she lived to like 98. It's like, oh my God. I mean, and now it's like, the average person might see a two-star hotel and be like, oh my God, I could never stay there. That's, how would you survive in such an establishment overnight? You know, it's, we just have, and there are, there are reasons, there are scientific reasons for this. Um, there's a concept called prevalence-induced concept change that basically says we only focus on, we compare things to our most recent examples. Mm. So, an easy way to think about this uh, in terms of the book is comfort creep. It's like something that was comfortable, say, five years ago, when the new, more comfortable version of it comes out, well, we adapt to that. And all of a sudden, that past one is like, is unacceptable. Yeah. Right. So we sort of, the, the, we keep moving the bar into comfort and ease and lack of challenge. And then we sort of never look back and we forget that, you know, that one thing used to be totally fine for, most of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's such interesting. I mean, and I think just even more broadly, like hedonic adaptation is such a big challenge that we all face, right. Where we like, Mm -hmm. it just constantly is ratcheting up and then you're in the rat race. And I think this is an interesting twist on that, right. Where we've gotten so comfortable, we're like victims of our own success and that we have these amazing worlds and yet it's creating all these unforeseen, unanticipated problems. Yeah. And I think that, I think too, that by trying to get out of your comfort zone, whether it's, you know, I'm going camping overnight or I'm going to try and be hungry or, you know, I've only run five miles before I'm going to try and run 10, whatever it is, it sort of resets the dial for you a little bit. All of a sudden you have a little more perspective to see just how good you have it now. Um, For example, my wife and I, we go to this restaurant all the time near our house and the food is great. The service is so unbelievably inefficient. It's like you always have to wait and they're always forgetting something. And it's just one of those where before I would go to, uh, before I went to Alaska, like we would be sort of waiting there and I just, I would sit there and just be like, oh my God, I can't believe they're so inefficient. Like, why are we waiting this long? When are those other people going to stop talking and get up from the table? This is unbelievable. How can these people, these people are just all working to take my time, you know, (laughs) just very self-centered. And then you get out into, go out into Alaska. And I was eating dinner out of this. We'd have to eat this dehydrated food, you know, and we're in this crappy tent TP thing and it's freezing cold. And I'm just sitting there thinking, oh my God, I would give everything right now to be waiting in that, that restaurant right now. It's nice and warm <laughs> and I would wait forever. And so now when I'm back in that restaurant, after having been to Alaska, I remember that, you know, I'm sitting there waiting. Everything's inefficient. The place is 
you know, falling apart. I'm going to have to wait 30 minutes. And I think oh, it's not, it's not that bad. Like you're going to, you'll be fine, dude. You know, and yeah. that gives me perspective. So when you think about that, what does that do for me? Makes me a little bit less of an asshole. Yeah. And if I can be a little bit less of an asshole every day, that's a huge win for me. And can you imagine if we put that at scale? Like, what if everyone could just be like 5% less of an asshole in their daily life? Like, wouldn't the world be better? So much better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is super cool. I'm, I think it's a good place for us to break here, but I'm, I'm really excited about the book. Congrats on writing it. Congrats on the experiences. And thanks for sharing all this wisdom here. Um, I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. Um, but for people who are uh, people who are listening, it's the comfort crisis, embrace discomfort to reclaim your wild, happy and healthy self. And it's awesome. So thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Chris. It was great to chat. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. If this was your first time listening to reinvented, be sure to click the subscribe button. Now, if you've been enjoying the show for a while, don't forget to leave a rating in Apple podcasts. And if you know someone that would love this episode, take a moment to spread the word. Thanks again. And I'll see you next time.